Here is your obvious statement of the day. UE school fees are high. Second highest in the world. <laughs> However, we will come back to this story. It's a survey that's out today. HSBC behind it. Uh, we are the second highest in the world after Hong Kong. Lots of texts about that. We're not going to ignore them, but we are going to be talking uh, legal issues, legal problems, legal conundrums for the next hour. Legal Hour on Drive Live. And Claire, who's with us? That's right. Yes, it is the Legal Hour this Monday afternoon. Ali Al-Assad from Yamalava and Plevka Legal Consultants in the studio with us. Good afternoon, Ali. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, as always, of course. And lots of uh, uh, questions and things to get through this afternoon, Ali. But also, we're going to start with um, a topic that you raised and I think is, well, it affects everybody. It's those pesky disclaimers and waivers and T's and C's that we (laughs) sign without reading most of us often because, let's be honest, they take too long to plough through. How important are they? How bound are we by them? What do they actually mean in a legal term? Mm -hmm. Here in this situation, as I know, everybody's familiar with the terms and condition or like disclaimers. We'll give shortly examples about it. But mainly we have to differentiate between three types. The first one is the stuff you sign. Okay. (laughs) Okay. The second one is that whenever, for example, you see an offer about certain servers, for example, it enumerates, for example, what benefits you get. And later there is terms and conditions at the bottom. Right. Okay, and later there is stuff that you don't sign that they are just like pushed to you. The first one is whenever you sign the terms and conditions, for example, like you go and buy an insurance policy or something, you always have like the main page that shows you all the clear terms, and later you have this like very small font, like for three yeah, or yeah, but it's small pages. font and like three or four pages. That's exactly. a lot to wade through. Which is basically a lot of people they don't read. However, we all sign blindly almost. <laughs> and also sometimes recently you see it a lot, like whenever you are buying apps or, for example, whenever you are opting for some e-services, oh, you have to take... Yeah. You just click. Does that count as a signature, first but, of all? In general, yeah, this is a signature because okay. that's something you read. And later when it comes to the dispute, if that's something you already approved, it means you are liable for it. Except one situation. Sometimes, because, you know, like there is these small funds and... Practically speaking, not everybody, like some, especially on the e-services, sometimes you go and like... To read the terms and conditions, you keep struggling for half an hour and like have more drafts and more drafts. So reasonably speaking, there is a chance that sometimes you may be signing without noticing some kind of abusive provisions or something that may be contradict the law itself. Any abusive clauses or any clause that clearly contradicts any applicable law, then this one, even if you sign it later, you can say that it's not applicable. It's something you can get rid of. The second type, as we are talking about, for example, you opt for a service or you buy an item or let's say a membership with someone, you sign the contract and later there is terms and conditions. However, these terms and conditions are not printed. So just like a general statement, like these are the terms, but terms and conditions apply. Whatever they add later, this is not part of the contract. So un- unless you are given these terms and conditions, there is no way they can enforce it against y- you. You actually have to sign and say, I've read and understood them and put your signature next to them. Exactly. Yeah. If you don't sign these, they are not part of the contract. Because the way how we uh, discuss always, whenever you have a contract, it's signed, it's signed already. If any party want to add any terms and conditions later, he cannot do it just by his own will. Because adding these terms and conditions means we are amending the contract, and to amend the contract, we need both parties to sign. Gotcha. Okay, so um, it, it comes down to this, doesn't it? It is a contract, it's a binding contract, if you sign to say, I have read the terms and conditions. But what is reasonable in a list of terms and conditions? Because there's... 
there's debate over that, isn't there? You can't be expected, or can you, to read mm. 16 pages of terms and conditions when you buy, I don't know, a toaster <laughs> or you know, a, a, a householder. I mean, I mean mm. within reason, mm. what can you be expected w- to w- digest? W- we can give example about this one. For example, let's say you buy, for example, like a membership uh, was like any service provider. Let's say this membership will last for a year. If inside these terms and conditions, you will have a provision that let's say that the service provider have the right to amend the, f- the service fee like without any limitation, we believe that this uh, clause was not going to be valid because at the end of the day, when it comes to contract, we are buying a service or an item to versus in exchange of a consideration. If one party have the right to change this consideration itself, the core of the contract is not there anymore. Right. So this is something we can waive. But uh, sometimes in terms and conditions, you will have, uh, let's say, an example like you buy this membership and in the event you want to meet earlier, you have to pay a penalty. This one, we believe it will remain valid, especially if the penalty is like in a reasonable amount. Okay. So that's an example. While the third one, which is usually a lot of people are under the impression that it's binding, while actually it's not, I'll give you an example about it. Like you go to a hotel, you drop your car to the valet. You will receive this ticket and say that we are not liable for any stolen items or stuff. None of that is, in, is valid. Why, why is that not valid uh, when something else is? Two, it has two points. First of all, and this was a case uh, that was decided by Dubai Court of Cassation that whenever you dropped your car, you received this ticket, but you don't sign it. Ah, okay. So, so you're, as you're saying before, you haven't signed it. It's just there stated on the card. Yep. That does not mean you've accepted it because you haven't signed. Exactly. It's like giving an offer from one side and later like you didn't allow the other party to say, yes, I accept or no. Why, why do companies use it so much though then? Because they do, don't they? I mean, especially with disclaimers, you know, I, I, you know by doing this, you accept that you know... Uh, that it's a dangerous sport or something like that. If you haven't actually signed, all of that's irrelevant. Why bother? Yeah, uh, the the background might be several points. First of all, like just some kind of like uh, send you out whenever you have a claim, just like they reply like you signed a disclaimer. As just like that. So half of people will give up then, I guess. Half of people will give up. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, because you can say, well, you signed this. And people, oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, and a lot of people will uh, be under the impression that, yes, I signed it, I'm done, so I'll I'll walk away. I'm not going to claim anything. That's uh, number one. Number two, sometimes you have like the people who are drafting these conditions come from different jurisdictions. And maybe in other jurisdictions allowed to have such type, such type of disclaimers. So maybe sometimes a copy paste from a different country, but it does not apply here. And the second reason of it, why, and that's the main point that the Court of Cassation here focuses on, especially when it comes to professional services, or for example, anything that uh, includes a danger, or maybe that may cause damages or losses, or maybe like can affect like cause someone's death. The idea is, if it will be allowed for any service provider to put these disclaimers, as a matter of fact, like people is not going to be that keen to maintain the security or the safety of the activities they are performing. For example, let's say. Sometimes you go to and buy a membership in a gym and you'll sign the disclaimer that that the gym is not liable for any injury that may happen. Here we need to differentiate between two types of injuries. If me as the client, I go and do the wrong exercise and end up hurting myself, this is not the liability of the gym. Mm. This is my own mistake. I'm liable for it. And the disclaimer in this part is applicable. So if I sign that, if there is any injury that happened because of my actions, then yes, fine. But sometimes you see in the disclaimer itself, it enumerates a lot of scenarios where like they are not liable. One of them, for example, in the event the machines are faulty, this disclaimer will never go through at the court. I mean, that's what I was going to ask, because otherwise signing these waivers kind of 
uh, lets lets an, an organisation off with with any kind of bad practices. It, exactly. it could seem, and that that uh, yeah. couldn't be right. Yeah, you know, and you're saying that wouldn't be right. Exactly, and that's the practice at the truth. The truth does not accept this stuff because by allowing these disclaimers to be valid, you are giving the window for any malpractice, any negligence, any uh, major mistakes to be legally, which is not going to happen. It's not possible. So that the, the faulty equipment in that example would override the what, the disclaimer exactly. that I'd signed yeah. because I could show that they were not fulfilling their their uh, legal duties as a gym to provide safe uh, uh, safe environment. Yeah, usually the main breaking point between whatever valid uh, disclaimer and non-valid is whenever the action we are trying to disclaim is it a crime or is it a major mistake or a major negligence. Every time the action that caused the damage result either from a crime or from a major negligence or major mistake or sometimes even like some kind of uh, a decisive action, decisive uh, actions, all these cannot be disclaimed. I cannot come and sell you something that's broken and tell you terms and conditions like <laughs> I'm not liable. Fair enough. But you need to provide, in the case of the gym uh, equipment malfunctioning, you need to provide proof. Yeah, exactly. That, 100%. Yeah, the, okay. the injury happened because, because that's the main point that usually lawyers will debate at the court. Sure. Was the damage caused by the faulty device? Or, for example, sometimes like the faulty device is because it was not maintained mm. or it's maybe like a manufacturing problem. Mm. So that's how like usually parties try to get away away of the liability or was the person able to use it in the correct fashion so yep. that's what the okay that's the decision of the court um this is one thing we're talking about today the t's and c's terms and conditions that we all generally just kind of sign with a flourish as if we've uh, read them your thoughts on that on 4001 we are going to be talking as well about community service do's and don'ts a collection of donations etc but if you have a question for ali he's here from your malaba and pletka this is the legal hour this is Drive Live on Dubai Eye 103.8. Questions on 4001 or via the free app. You can text for no money on that. If you'd prefer to call today, uh, you're welcome to do so. 423-1010. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Ali Al-Assad is here from Yamalaba and Pleska answering legal questions. Two topics that we're talking about today. Terms and conditions. Are you really really bound by the terms and conditions that generally apply in really small print that you've never really ever read let's be honest when did you last read terms and conditions for anything Claire Sherrick very rarely I have read them probably the most recently I can recall actually reading in detail is for booking a flight because it was to do with the conditions for that fare as compared to a more expensive fare and so I did read them because obviously that's got all the different where you can and can't rebook or change or something like that but as a general rule you're like a normal human scan and sign yes I know exactly Ali let me ask you this as a legal professional Mm -hmm. which you are you get the terms and conditions do Mm -hmm. you read them all? To be honest, it depends on whatever serve. For example, if, it, if we take the scenario of car insurance, yeah. because I know the repercussions of having a, a default, uh, like a not working insurance for car, yeah, I yeah. read it in detail. But if I am uh, downloading an app like on my mobile and they ask me to click for the terms and conditions, I just click it blindly. Yeah, yeah. Is that because you know they're going to be just a standard t- T's and C's? Uh, I mean, like if it's the, at the Apple iStore mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. we kind of have a certain amount of trust in Apple whether we should or shouldn't I don't know uh, that it's just going to be a standard thing protecting the, you know we don't read them every time right even you don't read them every yeah. time to be honest like the way how I do it like if I'm buying car insurance and later I end up having a problem with the insurance and God forbid like there is a major accident the liability is massive 
So for this situation, I read. But for example, if I'm buying sometimes like a ticket, like just and I end up finding a cheap one. Okay, worst case scenario, if there is anything against me in the term of condition, I lose the fare of the ticket. So, so you yeah, sort of, yeah, so yeah, at you that sort time, I may up. just like, let it yeah. go. You yeah. weigh out whether you could afford to lose it or not, yeah. don't you? Exactly. Like what damage I will face. If it's major, I read it. If it's not that major, I can deal with it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let it go. <laughs> but it makes a serious point, doesn't it? Well, we talk about this every week because yeah. invariably to one of the questions, your answer will be, go back to the contract because it will be there. And how many of us read contracts, terms and conditions apart, they form part of a contract and we, we just don't read stuff. One of the situations where I don't read usually sometimes if I start reading and I start seeing like these unreasonable clauses, uh, one day I had it, I was uh, registering for something that I see that a lot of like... Even if I get killed, like no one will cover me. So I just signed it blindly because I know, like, first of all, if I die, I'm not going to be there to claim it. Second of all, <laughs> like, these are not valid clauses. <laughs> so. Oh, so you you know that they wouldn't stand up in court, as it exactly. were, anyway. So yeah. you may as well sign the whole thing. Interesting one on that from a uh, question in from Gwen um, Ali. Uh, she says, are disclaimers of responsibility valid for health operations some hospitals ask you to sign them mm. that's a, a very good question here we have to differentiate between multiple scenarios if in the event we have a patient who have suffering from certain uh, situ uh, situation and he need an operation let's say and sometimes you know like with doctors a lot of time and they have the right to do it there is nothing guaranteed and sometimes there is very complicated operations that require like maybe you have a chance of 50 50 or sometimes even like 60 or something even worse that is a very high risk in this situation if the patient will sign it we believe it stands valid provided the doctor while giving the service he did whatever like everything possible or everything available of like the science development to to protect the patient for example let's say we have a very complicated operation that need to related to the let's say the main muscles in the heart if there is certain international standards and the doctor follow them and later the patient passed away during the operation if there is no mistake or wrongdoing or nudges from the side of the doctor then the disclaimer is valid but in the event we have someone who's under operation and he passed away just because of like for example overdose of uh, medicines in this situation, no one can say I have a disclaimer because this itself is negligence, it's a crime, and it's penalized under the labor, under the criminal code. So there, whatever disclaimers you have is not valid. Okay, another text in from Peter. Bank account, credit cards, terms and conditions, I mean, they are enormous, mm -hmm. aren't they? How many people have read their credit card terms and conditions? How many people could quote you their credit card interest, interest rate? rate? Probably mm -hmm. very few. Not yeah. very many. So I guess, you know, the, read them, but do they stand up? In general, like in the event you dispute it in the proper way and there is a situation where, for example, let's say you have an interest that was severely changed, like it's not something within like normal limits, you have the right to change because, again, as we mentioned before, if I'm having an agreement over a credit card with an interest of 5%, and of a sudden this is like this 5% become 40%, first of all, we are facing usury, which is a crime. Second of all, the entire contract we agreed on it, like we agreed that you will lend me money and I'll pay you certain interest. Now you change the entire contract. It's not something valid. And we believe you have the right to change to challenge it, yes. There okay. was that big scandal in the UK, wasn't there, over the terms and conditions containing details about that payment protection insurance. And a mm. lot of people were suddenly signing up for a payment that they hadn't necessarily been fully aware of. And now the banks are having to pay it back, aren't they? So I don't know whether that's to do with it not being clear enough in the terms and conditions mm. or, or something like that. I don't, because most probably these uh, are not part of the contract. This is something 
something like a service that out of a sudden, without realizing, you'll end up being You've been signed, signed up off for, to it, yeah. despite you never signed anything related or showing that I authorize you to register. So it's again me. back to that signature. Yeah. If the signature is missing, if the signature is missing, then there is no contract, and you never bound by yourself by it, and you have the right to challenge it. Okay, so when you sign for a credit card at a certain interest rate mm-hmm. at a certain point mm-hmm. in time, if that mm-hmm. then changes and increases mm-hmm. uh, at another point in time in the not too distant future, effectively that doesn't stand. As a general statement, it should not, unless we have like any certain drafts in the contract itself that you where you authorize that for them to make certain changes, then it might apply. But in general, any change in the contract should be done by mutual agreement. Mm. Rob Texan, and this goes back to interesting one. This uh, app purchases or app mm. permissions if you like you may give uh, an okay to allow all your personal data to be used when you sign up for particular apps it mm-hmm. may be that it has access to your camera to your contacts whatever it might be that you're signing up for but rob makes the point that if those uh, really important conditions uh, mm-hmm. apply they need to be on page one in clear language now with most with the two apps as far as i'm aware it's pretty plain language isn't it immediately the terms the the minor terms and conditions are after but if i see an app that i'm going to download and use and it wants to access my contacts and there's no real reason for mm. that generally I click and say no I'm not going to do that mm. but, and that's reasonably straightforward but that mm. should be the point surely in all instances the court will also uh, consider another point like uh, because what the, what the court uh, will consider as a pillar for a disclaimer if there is any kind of bad face or bad intention behind it mm. for example if the court will see that there is a very major term and they put it like out of sudden a very small font in a place where no one will think that it will be there mm. that's a point in your favour because there we can uh, uh, take the argument of that there is some kind of so like trying to catch you fraud out. or something yeah. like just like forcing uh, something like a I don't want to say that forging but like as you know for example someone will give you a pile of paper please sign them oh, these are all receipts while all of a sudden they put another paper in the middle mm. and you will be just signing the corners so there is some kind of a fraud or like any decisive actions in it then we may have a good argument about it but as you mentioned the example of the apps they do something very tricky uh, not very very smart actually there that regardless of the terms and conditions, whenever, for example, you want to take a picture or something, they tell you, we need permission, and you have to go to the settings of the mobile and open the permission you from that. Yes. Mm. So once you yeah. do it, it's clear they approve it. It's not something that's hidden in the contract anymore because you click the button specifically for this service. Mm. Mm. Okay, so take that little bit of extra care. Um, let me see. We'll come back to JD's text in a few minutes' time. If you have a question specifically for Ali of a legal nature, get in touch with us on 4001 via the free app. The usual phone number applies, 423-1010. It's the legal hour. No matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live only on Dubai Eye 103.8. 25 minutes more of the Legal Hour. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Ali Al-Assad is here from Yamalava and Pleska and uh, is answering your legal questions today. We'll come to a question on the text in a few moments, but if you do have one, get in touch with us on the usual numbers. I just wanted to mention something quickly here. JD uh, asked you a question a couple of weeks ago, uh, mm-hmm. Ali. We were off last week, of course, because it was Eid, but JD, uh, JD texted in. I wish JD had texted in. Uh, <laughs> and he said to us, uh, look, I worked in a free zone. I had a fall. Somebody had been cleaning uh, in one of the common communal areas, uh, if you like, and I wonder if I have a case. Uh, He can't do anything with the free zone, but he's now reviewing uh, the building's facility uh, management. JD, we appreciate you texting us back. Uh, Let us know what goes on with that. Now, here's a question for you. It's interesting, this. If you sign a contract on behalf of your company, for example, a rental agreement, and the company defaults, are you liable? Neil uh, is asking this. This is as an employee, not manager, on the license, not the owner. Okay, so here we have two parts. If we have a contract signed, 
by an individual on behalf of his company. If yes. I correct understood the question, okay. The fact that you signed it for I don't know about Tennessee contract, you signed in your capacity as representative of the company, not in your capacity as a individual. In this situation, in the event there is a breach, the other party should file the case against the company because even if he filed against you as an individual like you like the financial capacity between choosing an individual or a company it's better to choose the company because like if he's seeking any compensation the company will be more capable to pay but with rental contracts there is an exception the main problem is not who signed the contract the main problem is the one who who issued the checks because yes. the checks even if you issue it on behalf of a company as long as you are the one who signed them you are the one liable for the check itself if your signature is on a check and yep. there's a default, then whoever has then signed... Then you bounce that check as an individual. Has bounced it. Yes. Yeah, okay. So that's the distinction there. Hopefully, uh, Neil, that helps. Um, Elan's texted in. Claire, have you got that? Has that come up on your screen Yes, the, the one at the top. Yes, yeah. I see that. Uh, yeah, this is a good one, actually. Uh, he says, uh, I bought a plane ticket from um, an airline's website and enrolled for the three-month interest-free offer from my bank's credit card. I've done this several times in the past. But for the first time this time, I was charged uh, 49 dirhams processing fee by my bank. When I queried it, they said it's in the T's and C's on the bank's website. Now, that's assume it must not have been in those T's and C's before if he didn't have to pay it before. Yeah. In this situation, we can compare it to the situation where there is someone who, after signing the contract, who an- announced new t- terms and conditions. And just by the fact of putting it on the website, it doesn't mean that the other party approved it. So, so even if he had to tick, I accept the terms and conditions in order to avail of this offer, uh, which is the interest-free, that counts as him signing, if, though, right? If there is a tick, that's a different story. But if just the terms and conditions are just posted on the website, this is not uh, something binding for him. Okay, so Ilan, you need to check that. Did you have to tick, I accept the terms and conditions, in order to get the... Uh, the three-month plan, or, or did you not? There's another text that's just come in, actually. Uh, the entire transaction and applying for the program was on the airline's website. It seems to me that the airline uh, website should so inform So he never people. went via the bank's website, of course, right. So in this situation, we need to go back to see exactly, like, first of all, like, where this uh, terms and condition, the new term condition, where it was published. Let's say even if it was published on the airline website, not on the bank, still, if you don't agree to it, just by posting it on the website, it's not binding to you. Do you know one of the things with terms and conditions, and it, it strikes me with this, what, what Elan's saying here, she's saying, look, I had to pay a 49 dirham fee here. And you would have a lot of people who would turn around and say, that's only 49 dirhams, don't worry. But it's not the fact that it's 49 dirhams. Mm. It's the fa- it's the principle here, isn't it? And for a lot of people, that rankles. Well, especially that kind of rankles she's, with me. she's taken advantage of that offer before, not paid it. So it's obviously well, a change to how it works, which is kind of surreptitiously been bought in almost without it being obvious and Mm. and that's annoying Mm. and also she thinks she's going for an offer which is interest free and is going to help her to spread the payments she thought there wouldn't be a charge and it's however small the charge is it's annoying if you're taken by surprise honestly a lot of time we see it in practice we are uh, from time to time approached by people who have like even like a claim that financially it's not that worthy to have a litigation for it but sometimes it's a matter of principle even honestly i know personally someone who had an issue with his bank account where 50 fills were missing. They chased the bank and they got it back. Really? Yep. Because it was just the point that why should you have that 50? Num- I tell you, the other one that annoys people is when they round up in supermarkets by uh, uh, if you don't have the right, uh, you know, um, they round up the fills yeah, in a supermarket. Yeah, yeah, right. And all the yeah. supermarkets, nearly all of them now round down because there was so much sort of exactly the point of principle was, yeah, it's only five fills, yeah. but why do you get it? Because yeah, if you get it from yeah. every customer. Um, one more here as well, Ali, saying... Uh, uh, from Peter, any uh, disclaimers for taxis, Ubers, Kareem's, for example, that we should know about or be on the lookout for? 
Uh, for example, let's say here we are talking about contract where you are renti- uh, renting the service to be transported from place to another. In the event we have some uh, like an accident that happened, let's say, God forbid, like a truck will come and hit the car from the back without any mistake from the service provider or the driver himself. Then here we have the insurance company of the truck basically, and we have to chase the owner of the truck, and we don't we cannot clearly say that this is the mistake of the taxi company. Well, in the event the accident happened because of faulty brakes or uh, of the car, or let's say the driver doing a major mistake, let's say the driver is under the influence or there is something that he's not focusing on the road, then yes, even if there is a disclaimer saying that we are not liable, this one is invalid again because the uh, event or the incident that triggered the liability is a crime itself or is a major mistake or a major negligence. In these situations, there is no disclaimer. You have the right to sue them. What I sort of feel like I'm hearing tonight, Tim, that I might not have known is that it is worth uh, it checking and looking back and pursuing some of these things where I think often we think, oh, I'll let it go. It's too much mm. hassle. Or, yeah, okay, I mm. did sign it. My fault. Silly me. But actually, Ali, what you're saying is in quite a lot of circumstances, it is worth looking back at what happened and then making a decision whether you want to pursue that point. Exactly. I always look, what's the risk I'm facing? Let's say even if I sign something now, as I mentioned before, if I, the maximum damage I'll have, I lose the airfare. Okay, it's fine. Like, if it will take me like two hours or three hours to read and understand what's happening in the terms and condition. Yeah, but sometimes it is the principle. I'd, uh, I had a phone call from a phone supplier, and they said, would you like this contract? It's more data, it's a little bit more money, and it sounded good. So I said yes, and it was done very cleverly. It was a phone sales call, but I thought that kind of would fit me. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, well, I could do that over your phone right now. And I thought, well, great, let's do that. But then within a couple of weeks, there was a, a different uh, arrangement that was offered to the public, and it was slightly better for me, and it was quite a good bit cheaper. It was about, I don't know, two-thirds of the price but fitted me more so I thought well I'm going to change to that so I called the phone company and they said well yeah you can change to that if you want to I said well fine let's change to that and of course many of these calls are recorded and then they said to me well you now have to pay the outstanding of that contract that you signed you have eight months left whatever wow. 1200 1500 dirhams left so that's mm-hmm. what you have to pay and then we'll uh, downgrade you mm-hmm. and I said well you said I could and they said, well, you can't. And I said, but you said I could. And they said, but you can't. So we played tennis with that for a little yeah. while, batted it backwards and forwards. And I said, well, look, you recorded the call. So you now need to go away and listen to that recording. Because what said, you felt that that wasn't made clear to you, that you would be tied in for that time. Exactly right. Okay. So when, I, when the first call came and said, uh, I had a call back and they said, well, no, you can't do it. I said, no, but you, you said I could when I called to change it, that it's okay and it's all absolutely fine. And that call was recorded because I think most of your calls are recorded mm-hmm. yep. when they're sales calls. And they said, well, no, you can't. So we argued about that for a while. Anyway, it went on for about three or four months. Long story short, in the end, they said... It's fine. And it kind of got brushed under the carpet. But the point, I guess, is that that call had been recorded. Because if we literally qualify this call, this call itself is a contract because there is a sale representative Mm. where the company is liable for his action because he's working out of the company facility and he's the company representative. He gave you an offer that now I can downgrade you without paying any extra amount. That's the contract you agreed on, and these are the terms and conditions you agreed on. Yes. By the service provider later coming and telling you, now as long as you downgraded, new terms and conditions apply and you have to pay me the remainder of the contract mm. here they are adding new terms and conditions which you did not agree on mm. therefore they are bound by whatever was discussed during the phone call 
Well, fortunately, that yeah. was recorded. Were that not recorded, then... It's a matter of proof. Like, uh, exactly. It would be just your word facing their word. But as long as you had the record, you have your proof. But how many people would have stuck with the fight, as it were, for however long you said it took, three to four months? I mean, I think you totally did the right thing to do that. But I think a lot of people just let it fall by the wayside. They can't be bothered with the aggro. And then companies are getting away with this, aren't they? Uh, sometimes it happens. Like, for example, let's say if I owe, like, not me personally, if an individual owes something else, to the other individual and the other individual does not claim it even there is a statute of limitation after sometimes you cannot claim it anymore mm. so that's the point but for example like the, ma- the example you mentioned sometimes for an individual it may not be worth it to chase it but mm. imagine the same scenario you had but let's say the client was a company who have 150 mobile phones times 150 yeah, they want to download this will be a it, massive it, that amount. would very yeah. much add up yes yeah. yeah it's it's worth sticking to your principles isn't it uh, on occasions uh, what about banks that change their terms first of april uh this year updated on the website but you uh, have no choice for accepting says uh, aaron what, what if banks change terms and conditions on the web Mm-hmm. Um, you can just uh, do they apply how does that work basically whenever they come and say that we are uh, changing the terms and sometimes you receive for example an SMS saying please send Y to, to confirm send N to reject it or something in the event uh, you, re- you reply for example saying that I don't agree or whatever terms they ask you to say f- not to include you in these amendments then they have no right to amend to add it in the event you said yes, you are bound by it. In the event they just made an, a publication uh, on their website, but there is no clear approval from your side, the main principle in the law that if someone remains silent, this is not cannot be treated as an answer saying yes. Mm. You cannot uh, attribute a statement to someone who remains silent. Okay, so in theory, if banks ever change terms and conditions of I don't know cards or, or accounts in any way, every customer needs to sign in some way. Can you do that? Could they ask you to do that digitally? I don't know, with, with your online uh, banking. The moment you have a proof, for example, let's say is a clip online or, for example, let's say a voice message or a phone call, the way how it is trusted, then it's, uh, they may have the right proof for it. But just by posting it on their website, what if I don't check it? Okay, uh, let's go to the phones. We're talking terms and conditions, the legal implications or not of terms and conditions in contracts. But let's talk to Olu, I think this is. Olu, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank afternoon. you. So uh, yeah, you wanted, do you wanted to talk about your wife's visa, is that right? You have a question Correct. for Ali? Correct, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I'm Mr. Ali. Um, uh, now, the situation is that my wife, she's here in the UAE on my visa. However, I've given her an NOC to work with another employer. Now, uh, I want to move from one employer to the other. That means I have to cancel my visa. At the same time, cancel their visa where I have to reapply for another visa with the new employer. Now, my question is that what will be a situation with our employer when I cancel a visa to move in with another employer? Because technically, she still has a valid labor contract with that employer, would that automatically cancel that visa? Does she have to speak with her uh, employer bodies, or I can just proceed with the process and uh, get things sorted out? So basically, for your situation, as we understood, you have a residency, employment residency in the UAE, and you are sponsoring your wife, and now you are planning yes. to switch jobs. In the yes. event you have your new job secured, what you can do, instead of canceling your wife's visa, before you cancel mm-hmm. your visa now, you approach the immigration authority and you explain the situation. In this situation, mm-hmm. there is a certain deposit of around 5,000 dirham. You have to pay it. It will remain mm-hmm. with the authority. And under this fee, they will suspend the residency of your wife, which means mm-hmm. you can cancel yours without canceling the, uh, vi- the, wife for the, the visa for the wife. 
later within okay, a period of 90 days, whenever you mm-hmm. get your new residency, you reactivate your wife's residency, which means your wife's res- residency is not going to be cancelled. You can keep it running. Okay. Well, Mr. Ali, as a case may be, if the visa has been cancelled already, so where mm-hmm. do we stand? Okay. If the visa is cancelled already, basically here we need to notify you about something. If you just gave an NOC to your wife and she doesn't yeah. have a registered uh, employment counter with the authorities, she might be at risk. So it depends whether you are in a free zone or outside of a free zone. Just it's a labor, it, it, she is, I am in the labor, and she's also working within a, a labor uh, environment as well. Okay, if you have the NOC and the employment contract registered at the Ministry of Labor, then she's fine. Yeah. She can keep working there. Just whenever you get the new visa, uh, you update the records of the employer. But during mm-hmm. that time, if she doesn't have a residency, then she's not allowed to work. But so, so the registration of that NOC has to be something, a process that has to be done by me? I have to approach the... Yeah, the, for, for, for the, the way how it needs to be done, uh, usually you give the NOC, the PRO of the employer should take your NOC with the offer letter from his company, go to the Ministry of Labor, register this uh, contract at the Ministry of Labor, then at that time, despite the residency of the wife, which show housewife not allowed to work, you will have a counter document from the, from the Ministry of Labor saying she's allowed to work. By having this stuff, then you have the right process for her to work. How does that help you, Oli? Yeah, Mr. Halley, she's already working. She's as I speak to you, she's working. If she's working and she does, and you don't have this NOC and the contract registered Ministry of Labor, then no, she's I, working I gave, illegally. I gave, I, no, initially I've given her an NOC letter. She's an, working. An she OC- has, yeah, she has a, a labor contract with the company. But now, since we want, since we are in the process of changing our visas. What I'm asking is that do we now have to cancel that uh, labor contract? Do we have to speak to the employer to cancel it and, you know, put in another one when we have a new visa? Or we just leave it like that and do the switching, and after the switching, we, we continue. That's what the area I want to know. Yeah. Again, the NOC itself from the sponsor is not a valid permission for her to work, which means in your wife's situation, regardless whether you are changing your visa or no, you should go to the Ministry of Labor and register the employment contract. The same what you do it now, you have to do it after registering the new residency visa for your wife. Okay. Okay, Olu? All right, that's fine. Thank you very much for your assistance. Thank Appreciate you, you coming on. That's one question today. More questions uh, after the break where Andy has uh, something in here. Somebody else talking about uh, <laughs> their phone company, uh, home TV services. More questions. We also need to get to uh, our second topic for the Legal Hour today, a recap on community service do's and don'ts. There have been some changes uh, if you set up a civil organisation. We'll just run through that uh, once again. Ali Al-Assad is here from Yamalaba and Plethka. Get in touch. 4001 or via the free app. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai I 1038 FM. It's 53. It is the legal hour. This is uh, only for another six minutes. Legal hour on Drive Live. We still haven't got to our second topic today, which is essentially if you want to set up a club, what is the legal situation? Let's say, for example, Claire Sharrett, that you wanted to. Uh, set up your dog walking club, which you've long wanted to do. <laughs> and you would charge members an annual, I don't know, membership of, what, 50 dooms a year for the card, the little badge that you get for being Claire's dog walker. Is that all right? But even if I don't want to charge people, I think it comes under this 
new th- law, right? I think it does. Is, th- is that the situation, Ali? Let me say, see, I, I wanted to start a, a mountain biking club or something, for example, and we go on mountain bike rides. And to cover the administrative costs, I charge 100 dirhams a year to 10 people. If I do that, I need to have a license. Basically, for any activity, even let's say it's a non-profit activity, but you are having some, an, an impact on the society. For example, you are gathering people to share a hobby or to provide certain services, even if it's unpaid. At the end of the day, you need a license because there is a body functioning on ground doing cert- something in the society. So you need to have a license. And the issue of uh, charging the fees to the members, it's something you cannot basically avoid because under the license, you need to have an office or like a premises from where you operate. Mm. And for this one, you have to pay rent. And in general, if you are paying rent, you have to let like even, let's say, a margin fee, but you have to charge something to your members. Okay, so say, for example, the our meeting place, mine was a, a digging club, and we met in my garden to dig once a month. I, I like to dig. Then, you know, in theory, I'm not paying rent for that. The members are not paying rent because I'm already paying the rent. So no I, money is exchanging hands. Exactly. Do we still have to get event, our license from the CDA? To be honest, in practice, in the event, it's an event limited to two or three friends who share an activity. I don't see that this is an actual club because it's more like a, it's a club in the social meaning, but not in the legal meaning. Okay. The legal meaning, if we are having something that uh, inquire, uh, include like uh, collecting funds, let's say, or for example, having campaigns, or you will have like a public uh, appearance, for example. Membership let's, fees, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. For example, let's say we are talking about uh, a club that, for example, have awareness about certain disease. For example, you will be appearing in public distributing flyers. Mm. This is not something anymore related to two or three friends in the garden. For this stuff, you need a license. Okay. Well, I use that example specifically not to be duff, but it does make the point very well. A bunch of friends getting together to mm. enjoy a particular activity, digging in the garden, mm. whatever it might be, fine. As soon as you, I don't know, set up a Facebook group and say, mm. we are here, we are Claire's dog walkers, we have a premise, we regularly get together, that is the differentiator. Our understanding, the moment you make it open to the public, like to bring members, even let's say it's unpaid, they don't pay anything, but the moment you are promoting certain activity, then the license is required. But if there is just something between you and two very like close friends doing an activity together, this is not a club. This is just maybe like one-time event. So you have to be licensed to do that. If you collect donations anyway, mm-hmm. you have to be licensed. But if you are a charitable organization, mm-hmm. that is a different set of regulations. Uh, there is two types here, because for a charity uh, establishment, you need a license, and every time you need to collect uh, fun- uh, donations, there's a certain permit you have to get it. Right. For example, today we have a campaign, we are collecting money to fight, for example, let's say, uh, blood cancer or something. You have to put a very clear policy to the authorities showing that this is the campaign we will help. We'll start it from X date till Y date. The people who are in charge are XYZ people. We are targeting to collect an amount of X dirham, and this will be paid, for example, to this hospital or to this research center. Mm. All these need to be included in your application, and once you have the permission, you have the right to proceed. Any collecting uh, process of collecting fund or uh, collecting charities from individuals without having the proper permission, you will end up with a very severe uh, penalty, especially if you do it online. If you do it online, you may face a penalty under the cyber uh, uh, crime law, and then it starts from 250,000 dirham. Mm. And it may include jail up to three years. So this is viewed as solicitation of funds? Yes. Uh, okay, so that, that's a slightly different yeah. issue. I mean, what we're generally talking about, I just wanted to make the distinction, I mm-hmm. think, between charitable organisations and social clubs, because these are grouped together on the CDA, the Community Development Authority website, Government of Dubai website, as social 
clubs. That's how they view them. It's it's a very broad application for it the is. license. Um, but it's essentially it's this: any association or league or organisation with the capacity of continuity includes a group of individuals for the purposes of practicing any activity or different activities, whether social, athletic, cultural, artistic, or entertainment. And it goes on. But it is essentially and one of a the main, social club. Yeah, one of the main points you mentioned: continuity. Like it's not something an event that's happening just on a random basis. Like right. At my house with my two or very clo- uh, close friends. Mm. As long as we are talking about something that will have a, like a policy or a like an ongoing project, and we are open to attract members, regardless it's paid members or free members, that's a official club, and you need a license for it. Without it, you may have penalties. But you can do it, and it is. You can get details from uh, the CDA website. We've got a few couple of questions in here. Uh, just run through these uh, briefly. I think you've got to fit Andy's in, haven't you? Uh, I think we do need to. Actually, this is interesting. Uh, Claire, I'll let you do that. Uh, he wants to know, Ali, uh, some traffic fines have no proof, he says. Just mm. the word of the person that reported it. Is this enforceable without proof? Basically, uh, whenever we, there is two t- type of people who can report fines. We have the policemen who have the right, for example, to whenever they see you are committing a fine, they have the right to issue a fine to you, even if, you, let's, for example, they don't stop you, like just put you on a camera. Alternatively, there is something that happened, like if for a, a certain plate number keep getting complaints from the public that one day we saw this person in this area had, like a, let's say, he uh, like drive recklessly next to me. And after some time, the same plate number was a completely different person in a different area received the same complaint. If it happened frequently, the authorities may issue a fine to the person. Yeah. Mm. Okay, uh, here's one. This is from Shahab. What about the applications on mobile, like Meetup? Do they go under the same licensing, the social club licensing? Uh, the main point is continuity. If we are having something on a regular basis, we recommend to have a license, especially if we are talking about like where we have a team where there is a clear management, there is someone who always, for example, send the invitations. There is something that's happening that, for example, like... Uh, climbing club better to have it but in the event it's a meeting club where for example I just randomly five people agree to meet together and go for a dinner and go for a walk mm. for hiding this is not a club okay. as long as there is nothing happening on a regular basis it's not a club okay uh, licensing for that I think it's 2020 dirhams by the way I think it's two years but all the details are on the government advised CDA uh, community development authority website social club licensing is where you'll find it so we've got time for today on the legal hour thank you for the questions as ever Ali Al-Assad from Yamalava and Plethka Ali, it's always good to have you here. Thank you for coming. Our pleasure. Thank you.